Welcome to Hidden Tracks with Robin LaRose, the little heard stories behind the music, the artists, and their work. Hey, it's Robin LaRose. Welcome to Hidden Tracks. Today, uh, revisiting a talk with the legendary Roger Waters, singer, songwriter, activist, and co-founder of Pink Floyd, and creator visionary of some of the most incredible concert tours the last couple of decades. Dark Side of the Moon Live in 2006, the three-year wall live tour that started in 2010, and most recently, the Us and Them tour of 2017-2018. That tour is uh, documented in the breathtaking concert film Us and Them that just premiered for two nights only around the world. The film was shot in Amsterdam over the four-night stop there last year. It was filmed and co-directed with Roger with his longtime videographer, Sean Evans, who also did the Wall movie from that concert tour. And that's where I caught up with Roger Waters when the tour came to Vancouver. Roger Waters, pleasure uh, to meet and talk with you. Thank you for doing this, Roger. Not at all. I'm staring out my window at all the seaplanes and uh, people buzzing around on this beautiful afternoon. Welcome back once again. Thank you. It, this is a fantastic uh, live production, which I have seen uh, a couple of times. This is something that continues to evolve and grow in so many ways and still remains such a legendary piece of work on so many levels with so many universal themes that resonate with people around the world. Why, why do you think that is? I'm not sure you have seen this, unless you've been down to South America. This one, no. This one has changed. This is this is a completely different experience. Um, you know, I really wanted to take it to uh, South America, and uh, as you know, they or may, you may or may not know, they don't have um, arenas in South America because they don't play basketball and they don't have ice hockey. So you either play in a club or you play in a football stadium. And so we uh, decided that we would make this show uh, so that it would work in in a in a big stadium. And uh, so we tore the whole thing apart, and we're now we were projecting over 220 feet, which is uh, 8,000 pixels wide to be technical, and we're now up to 15,000 pixels wide. So we're projecting over about 440 feet of wall, and I have to say it is absolutely spectacular. It must have been a lot of fun uh, reworking this and upgrading it and refreshing it to this uh, this size. Well, it is, and I mean, also the fact the fact is um, the question you actually asked me, which I didn't answer, was how's it changed uh, thematically. Um, I, I have realized in the 30 intervening years since I wrote this piece. When I wrote it, I sort of thought it was about me and and my dodgy relationships with women and the fact that my father was killed in the Second World War and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is still true that there, there is a thread of autobiography that runs through it, but I've come to realize that um, it has a much more uh, universal meaning, that, that my um, small amount of experiences can be uh, seen as uh, symbolic for, uh, for the larger experience that um, we all um, uh, live through, particularly in these days of uh, political and religious and international uh, conflicts where so many innocent lives are being, um, in my view, needlessly uh, thrown away. The, the experience and feelings uh, you have when performing this piece in front of people around the world, um, what are you feeling? Uh, and you must be having a tremendous amount of fun. You, you're so passionate about these uh, themes and, and doing this production. You have for a long, long time. What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? 
You know, um, I sing uh, the song Vera uh, backstage. I'm climbing out of the hotel room and going downstairs and things, and I pause from time to time to sing a verse. And by the time I'm coming to the last verse of Vera, um, when I'm singing Vera, Vera, what has become of you, I'm actually behind the curtain getting ready to come up onto the fore stage in order to perform Bring the Boys Back Home. And I step out... Uh, through the curtains then, and so I can see the audience are like 15, 20 feet away from me, the front rows of the audience then. Um, so I can, I'm, I'm looking at their faces while I'm singing, does anybody else in here feel the way I do? And I see a lot of them mouthing the words, and it's quite clear that they do feel the way that I do. And that, and they're very, and they're deeply moved by uh, the images that we show during Vera, which are of a, a little girl being re- reunited with her father when he comes back from war. And so, um, that's just one of the points where I'm standing in the dark. They don't know I'm there. I'm standing there singing, and they're watching this this movie that's going on on the wall. And and so, I, I get an actual tangible. Uh, experience of watching them feeling the same thing that I'm feeling before I get up back up on the stage again. It's very moving. And on so many levels. I mean, it's it's quite fascinating to watch, listen, and experience this um, from start to finish. You know, initially when you created this piece of work, um, uh, you've been quoted that you felt alienated and disconnected from the audience or people in general. Floyd got so huge. And uh, now after creating this piece of work, how do you feel? More or less connected with your audience? More? Oh, way more. I, I mean, you know, back in the day, which we're talking about 79 when we first did it. Yes. And in the years before then, when I, when I had become extremely irritated on the animal store in 76 and 77 mm-hmm. and things, uh, I completely erroneously um, thought it would be a good idea if we performed the music and people sat quietly and listen to it and maybe applaud it at the end. Whereas um, these days I'm somewhat disappointed if I can't hear them singing, you know. Uh, um, I, I like the people in the audience now to be as involved as possible and to make and to be as, make as much noise as possible and be... Uh, well, I just have a completely different attitude to it and I, I, I feel a great sense of community the more we all join in together the better i feel uh, so it's it's an absolute blast doing it now i bet uh, it is and it's a it's a show that i'm the whole team of people that i've worked with who put this together are so talented and work so hard that it's something that i really enjoy sharing with uh, with the audience each time we perform it we're, we're beginning to run out now i've got about another uh, 26 or something to do and uh, and then I'll be done um, which is um, I'm beginning to sort of dread those last few gigs coming up because um, it's been uh, it's been such a great experience doing it quite the quite the family that you have uh, created and have followed you uh, in creating this and evolving and growing this process and I'm sure you're incredibly connected to all of those uh, people this extended family probably much more so since you wrote this and experienced uh, so much since then and now correct to say yeah I I was just thinking then um, there's that great uh, song it's Ray LaMontagne isn't it yes I've been saved by a woman which is a fantastic chorus line. 
on that that first album he made was full of so many beautiful songs. Um, Trouble. So it was called Trouble, wasn't it? The, I think the album was called Trouble, and the, and the big hit was called Trouble. But, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Themes in your songs, Mother, for example, it's amazing amidst the special effects and, and chaos going on in the production, which all fits just like a, a silk glove, bombs going off, and then comes this beautiful piece called Mother, uh, which has a couple of meetings of course, in the literal sense. And there's another word for government, mistrust of the government. Um, Did did you ever see a time when we might govern ourselves or we have a government-less society or trust it more? Um, Unfortunately, at the moment, it looks as if the, uh, the very, very wealthy are getting the upper hand more and more. Though there are glimmers of hope, not just in the Arab Spring, but in the Occupy movements, which have... Which have uh, they, they look for a moment as if they were going away, but I don't think they are. I think people are beginning... The great middle class are beginning to twig that they've been screwed uh, uh, ever since they were can remember, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and that they're beginning to twig it and they're beginning to go... Um, Hey, this weird experiment, certainly in the United States I'm talking about, this experiment of just letting the rich get richer and richer and richer and that somehow maybe this will benefit us all, they're going, no, this doesn't work. This doesn't work at all. It doesn't benefit us all. It benefits them. Um, Why on earth did we ever believe this bullshit? And I think that's beginning to get through. And, of course, they believed it because they're so full of McDonald's and and um, Kardashians that they've got no brain left or make decisions with or think with. That's what they've done to us. And we and we are, but we are fighting back. We are beginning to say no, no more of this nonsense. And and obviously in south of the border, we're going to find out in November um, just how far they've managed to dumb us down. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, our president. Not that he's my president, because I'm a UK resident, but we're still making war on far too many um, small brown people in foreign lands and uh, than we ought to be, and so on and so forth. And he is going to be up in an election. Um, this guy who straps his dog to the roof of his car and wears magic underwear. <laughs> and, uh, and has spent his whole... Um, career, his business career, has been asset stripping. This is a man who looks for um, businesses, manufacturing or other, um, that his company can buy so that he can strip of of its assets and make a profit. And what happens is that the people who work for those companies are thrown out of work, they lose their benefits, and he walks away with millions and millions of dollars. And so he's saying to us, look, you better please vote for me as president, because look how clever I am. I can, I'm, I'm so good at ripping people off. And hopefully the American electorate will put aside all their prejudices about gay people or what, whatever it is that might allow them to drift towards voting for someone like this and say no. No, 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 no. We've seen how you operate. Yeah. The idea of giving you 
even a sniff of the reins of state is completely insane, and we will not do it. But as we know, that Congress has been bought and paid for for umpteen years, and it's something that um, desperately, desperately, desperately needs reversing. There are laws that need reversing. Obviously, the, the Patriot Act has to be repealed. I mean, you know, in the United States of America, they talk about it being land of the free. No, it's not. It's a police state. The Patriot Act says that if they want to, they... We, we, we don't know who they are, but if they suspect that you might be a terrorist, they can take you from your home and incarcerate you without a phone call, without recourse to a lawyer, without connection with your family. You just disappear. And this is the law of the land. And it's wrong. And it has to be repealed. So... Don't get me started. <laughs> you're, you're already started. You know, one can be hopeful that uh, people will wake up and, uh, pardon the expression, not be comfortably numb. It leads me to uh, this song, Another Brick, Children. Children yeah. being the future, uh, teaching them to be free and great thinkers and feelers uh, is the most important thing. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um what, 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 oh Christ, was it Yates who said education is not the filling of a bucket? It's a, I can't remember, the brain goes. But anyway, um, we work with children. Every city we go to, we work with a different group of children, and, and, and normally their children have had some difficulties in their lives, and to uh, engage in after school activities because. Um, they need to. They need extra help, and they need and uh, to to see the way these kids uh, work with me, but al also in the work that they do with one another is is very uplifting. And uh, uh, the the adults and carers who who work with them often using music as a as a channel um, to communicate um, is wonderful thing to see. It's a great thing to see. Uh, and so um, I'm always very happy to see the kids who come and work in our show. Um, we have maybe 15 or 16 of them every night, and um, it's, it's terrific. Uh, clearly, one of the great problems, again, you know, I don't know that much about Canadian politics. I, I know that um, you live in a far more liberal society than the United States is, which is a very good thing. Yeah. And so, and so hopefully you have um, better education here than they do in the States. Um, but a, a, again, you know, the education system in the United States has been based largely on the idea that um, what they, they, what they need is a, a nice, docile, not very well-educated workforce so that they can get this workforce uh, to work their balls off uh, next to nothing and, um, and to keep the very wealthy very, very wealthy. Uh, and so I, I think it's actually been um, the fact that education in the United States is so poor. It's the richest country in the world, and I think they're number 18 um, in a table of... Uh, uh, literacy. They're the 18th most literate nation in the world, which is pretty amazing. It sure I mean, they is. Just, they, 
they don't really want their kids to learn to read and write. You know, what, 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 you know, what, whatever for? If you want them to sit in a factory pressing a button, or even not, or even just be quiet and do as they're told, you don't really want them reading literature. You don't want them reading Orwell and Huxley and Shakespeare and, you know, and Faulkner. And you, do, you it, 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 it's an inconvenience. They might learn something. They might rebel. So. Um, I think I, I think they've kept them dumb on purpose. You know, Huxley said in um, Huxley's Great Fear, he and Orwell, you know, were the, were the two writers um, back in the day who, who who looked to a future that that were really concerned about. Yes. Well, H. G. Wells as well, of course. But and Orwell was concerned that you know the the Big Brother um, government would appear and that they would. Uh, burn books because they didn't want people to read and to learn anything. Huxley, on the other hand, was concerned that they wouldn't have to burn the books because nobody would be reading them because they'd all be watching the fucking Kardashians. I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to say <laughs> that's quite that all right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> they, they will. You know, we will kill them with kindness. We will make life so dumb and entertaining. Um, um, that none of them will ever dream of going and reading a book because they'll be so busy twittering or tweeting or mm-hmm. doing whatever it is that they do. You see them, and it is really alarming. You sometimes see groups of young people sitting around, and they've all got iPhones, and they're all tweeting each other. <laughs> I know. They're sitting next to each other, sending these dopey messages about nothing. <laughs> And you think, wow, this is like, this is, it is really strange but sad. But I think that there is a, I think that there is, a, there's going to come a backlash. I mean, I can, can't see it right on the surface of things now, but I think people are beginning to go, wow, no, I don't want to tweet. You know, how do you light a fire? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't get it. I mean, I go to work on the train, and people don't look, talk to each other. Their heads are down, and they're tweeting or listening to something on their iPod or iPhone or iPad. It's, it's just it, you're absolutely correct. It's got to shift. And I, there's, I, um, there's a lot of imagery in the new show with, um, with iPhone imagery, just because there's something so iconic and disturbing about people with those little earphones in, walking <laughs> around in their own little bubble. Yes. So it, it's actually all over my show. I have it, you know, most mo- most of the characters on the screen have got. And which is not really my idea. It's not my idea. It's a ripoff from Banksy, you know, the British street artist. <laughs> yes, who yes. Did he, who, um, um, oh, yeah, his famous one, I think, was on the wall in Jerusalem. And, it, and it's a, a black kid with an iPhone in and it just says, I need, or something like that next to it. It's a you know, a slogan, and it, became, it developed into a movement of people making slogans around the idea that all this um, kind of mini entertainment that we carry around with ourselves um, is actually an impediment between us and the potential that we have for having real feelings about each other, and particularly about uh, black people who need more to eat. It, it, it inures us from... Um, Becoming emotionally connected with what it means to be human. Is there one song or theme in this production that's most poignant? 
or timely you want to resonate most or are most passionate about? Well, yeah, bring the boys back home. It, yeah. There it is, right there. There yeah. it is. Boom. There's the nugget of the thing right there. What are our boys doing in Afghanistan killing brown people? What is the point of it? I know I know somebody would come up, what is he crazy? Well obviously we're over there to kill terrorists. Yeah. No, you're not. We all know that you can't go to Afghanistan and force them to bidding. We've been trying to do it for three hundred years. Nobody has ever succeeded and nobody ever will. It's it's about something else. You know, it it's an exercise of control of some kind. Also there's a huge, huge, huge profits in it. Huge. Massive. Massive, massive. You know, imagine the profits in, you know, building all those airplanes and drones. And you mentioned earlier that uh, you are inspired by uh, your friends and your family. What else inspires you, Roger? Um, nature, you know. I mean, this place is so beautiful. I'm not talking about BC. I'm talking about the earth that we live on. It's so incredibly beautiful. And uh, we, 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 we as, a, as a species, have, have tended to ignore its great beauty. And, um, uh, you know, the avaricious underbelly of the human soul has leached out. And, um, and so that is the big political battle that we're all fighting now. You know, that's why uh, we have to vote Democrat in the United States next election, because if, if by some weird happenstance the Republicans had four more years, one of those Supreme Court judges is going to die, you know, and then mm -hmm. and they'll put in another um, raging right-wing um, Supreme Court justice, and they'll start repealing... Uh, Wade Rowe and all kinds of stuff. It's, a, it's, it's actually a strange system that they have uh, in the United States where the supreme arm of government is the judiciary. That When you get a, a, thing, a decision that you would think would be legislative and it, it comes down to it, suddenly somebody sues about it and it ends up in the high court and it ends up with these nine people. You know, and, the, and the incumbent um, ruling party gets to choose who the ne who the next one of the nine is when one of them dies, and that, that's really really scary. That's the scariest thing. It is. Yeah, it's a it's a weird system. Is there more fear in the world, or more love in the world? I mean, fear can always be overcome, but love is always present because Listen, it's it's a I, force. You know, I think the the other side to all this. Um, uh, Facebook or to the internet or to emailing one another or exchanging information. Uh, the other, the other side, the good side of the coin, is that we we are more able to communicate one with another across um, boundaries that are either national boundaries or boundaries of philosophy or religion or or whatever it may be. It is easier for. Um, me to communicate with somebody who lives in Iran than it was because of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, my my fervent hope is that um, people are not fearful enough to go for the extreme religious position. Mm -hmm. Say, oh, things are so scary. We've got to live under Sufi law, you know, so, <laughs> and stone women to death if they're found in the back seat of the car. Bizarre, you know. Um, so let, let's hope that they that that some wisdom 
will prevail that is um, more humane and than the wisdom that extremists believe has been handed down to them um, by the prophets. Not as extreme, obviously, as people who wear magic underwear and strap dogs <laughs> to the roofs of their car, but nevertheless, quite extreme. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear that you, and I've heard this and heard you say it before in interviews, get more pleasure from love than from hate. Well, absolutely. You know, you, everybody can, I'm sure every, everybody um, who's, who's lived, um, I'm not quite sure how to put this. Mm -hmm. I think everybody has moments in their life when they experience that thing where they've done a good deed or given somebody something or, or, and they think, wow, that felt really good. And so we, we, we all experience it, uh, you know, and, and also, um, we see people doing it. The people in society who work the hardest and who, who give the most, unfortunately, we don't pay them any money, and we should. I'm talking about, you know, nurses and doctors and teachers and the people who care for us and who care for our children. Um, the only consolation, and I'm sure it's not, and it is a consolation, is that we know from our own experience that when you give like that to another human being, uh, the payback is enormous. So we know that those wonderful, those nurses, those wonderful people working in hospitals, looking after the sick, um, they are getting that payback all the time. But they should be getting cash as well. You know, <laughs> I agree. in my view, I totally agree with you. I thank you greatly for doing this, Roger. Well, let's let's try and p persuade them, um, the people here that, that they really ought to see this show. <laughs> I uh, urge everyone. I th I p people who don't come will regret it. I promise you that. The word of mouth on this thing is that, wow, if you ever, ever go and see any show anywhere. I know I'm sounding a bit big-headed, <laughs> which I am, of course. Of course. But, but um, you know, this is the one. And it is. It's, uh, I wish I could watch it. I really do. I, I stand up there every night. I think, wow, this, <laughs> this is... I mean, I've seen it in rehearsal, you know, but I've never seen the show, obviously, because it's impossible. I watch it. I watch a hard drive of it every night and make notes because we're constantly, constantly changing little bits of this and that to try and squeeze a drop more emotion out of it. It's got to be a bit frustrating because you'll never have the same experience of someone, say, like me or whoever has never seen this, to go yeah. and experience for the first time. Yeah, trust me, my experience standing up there is good enough. <laughs> I get a lot out of it, I promise you. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Hidden Tracks podcast with Robin LaRose. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your podcasts.